Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. Welcome back to part two of our discussion on the use of aducanumab for Alzheimer's disease. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence, and your program host. In the first part of this podcast, we discuss the background and clinical trials, and we've linked that episode in the show notes. Joining me again today to continue our discussion are Dr. Mandy Leonard, Senior Director of Drug Use Policy and Formulary Management at the Cleveland Clinic, and my Vizian colleague, Dr. Stephen Lucio, Senior Principal in Pharmacy Solutions. What other factors are driving aducanumab formulary decision-making? In my perspective, when agents are reviewed for formulary addition to health system formularies, to hospital formularies. I'm not an expert in managed care formularies, but really what comes first is safety. So in comparison to what you currently have available, how does aducanumab compare to other agents that you have? As we recall before, we talked about some GI distress. We talked about maybe some CNS effects with the oral agents for Alzheimer's disease, where now you have a monoclonal antibody and they did see some, you know, I would say serious side effects that patients would go in and obviously be monitored for. That's number one. Any committee reviewing it should look at the safety of it. Number two, then we get to the efficacy in comparison to what you currently have available to manage Alzheimer's disease. The data are controversial. The FDA did approve it based on a surrogate endpoint. Each committee has to go back and evaluate how they feel about that surrogate endpoint from there. So if you get past the safety and you get past the efficacy and your committee says, okay, we're good here on both of those, then it comes down to cost. A lot of committees that evaluated this agent couldn't get past the safety and efficacy. However, if it came down to cost being a factor, when the agent first became available, it was priced about $56,000 annually per patient. That is relatively expensive. However, we know there are other agents out there that are much more expensive. The issue was is how many patients with Alzheimer's disease would be eligible. And that gets back to when the original FDA-approved indication, it was for any patient that had Alzheimer's disease. Then the FDA went back and updated or revised the indication to only include those patients with early Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment, which still could lead to a significant number of patients being eligible based on that indication to receive this medication. So in aggregate, the cost could be extreme. And there were many things out there, editorials and other comments about the expense that this might incur to our healthcare system and what was the bang for the buck. Definitely a lot of complexity in the decision-making, again, including the cost. Stephen, I'm wondering how CMS is managing this medication. It's very, very specific how CMS is addressing it. Mandy did a tremendous job in laying out the uncertainties about the efficacy, the safety considerations, as well as what that means for the relative expense. And as you mentioned, the product was initially $56,000 a year. Now it's been cut in half to $28,000 a year because the uptake has been so limited. And because of that, a lot of people were looking to CMS to see exactly what would be done. Would they take as big and as bold of an action, maybe as FDA did in approving the product? And in fact, they did. CMS undertook a national coverage determination to analyze what their approach would be, which was published in draft format 
earlier this year and in April was finalized. The result was that CMS said, yes, we will pay for this medication or we'll pay for medications like aducanumab. That's one of the first things. They did not restrict their coverage determination just to aducanumab, but included all monoclonal antibodies that target this pathway of the beta amyloid. They were preparing not only for this product, but should others come through a similar type of mechanism. But the caveat that they included in expect is that if you're going to use this drug, they will pay for it if a patient is registered within a clinical trial. So there's not this just open access to the medication because they, as many others, do feel like there's a lot more that needs to be learned, a lot more data that we need to generate to fully understand what the place in therapy of this drug might be. So the CMS will pay for the medication, but there are these considerations about being in a clinical trial as well as this decision not being limited just to aducanumab, but all of the monoclonals that might be approved at some point in the future for this specific pathway. It's very interesting what that decision has created. Number one, we definitely want drugs that are available to take care of patients that are safe and effective and that address unmet medical needs. These additional limitations that CMS has put in place has brought some concern from patient advocacy groups because they view it potentially as additional hurdles that you have to overcome. Now, of course, we could say that, well, it's appropriate given the uncertainty, but nevertheless, there has been that response. It's also been interesting because CMS taking the broader view of not limiting this coverage determination just to aducanumab, but potentially other monoclonal antibodies that would treat the same type of circumstance, there have been additional concerns about what does that mean for the other products that are in the pipeline. Actually, given the way in which FDA has approached accelerated approval, there's even been some concern that maybe accelerated approval is not the way to go if you're developing a drug, because by this example and other considerations where accelerated approvals have not been confirmed subsequent, there maybe now is some additional thought that maybe waiting for a traditional review, even though it might take longer, you avoid some of the enhanced scrutiny that has actually come up with some of these more well-known accelerated approval examples. So it's just always interesting to see how one decision then influences other circumstances and responsive decisions down the road. We do have coverage, we do have these determinations, but again, there are additional limitations to try and address that remaining uncertainty which still exists. That's insightful commentary on the utility of accelerated approval in this instance. Mandy, I know when this medication first came to market, there was a lot of activity in the lay press surrounding it. What should patients and families know about this medication? What I think patients and families should know about this medication is there should be a frank conversation and very transparent conversation and a decision made between the physician and the patient and the family about whether or not to go forward with this. So it needs to be talked about the efficacy. And I think the effectiveness coming out of the trials, what is the effectiveness that we'll see in practice? And we might not know because there'll be clinical trials that patients will be enrolled in and for government payment and other things. But to make sure that families and patients know that this is not a miracle cure is very important, especially because of the expense of the agent, as well as the risks. Those risks really need to be discussed as well, especially the ARIA. In addition, patients and families need to know that there is additional monitoring that will have to occur with this agent. So additional scans, things of that nature that could have additional costs associated as well. And based on that, then a very informed decision can be made between the provider 
the patient, the family, and then obviously considerations of insurance coverage, things of that nature before the patient starts the medication. That's the most important thing that everybody understands before a patient is started on this medication. That's great advice about open dialogue, setting clear expectations, and really having transparency. I will also add that there was a statement from the American Academy of Neurology that was put out in late 2021 in regards to aducanumab should not be used in patients with moderate or advanced dementia or those without biomarker evidence of that brain amyloid, which we mentioned before in the trials, the patients did have to have a positive amyloid scan. In addition, as we're talking about patients and families, it would also be important to the American Academy of Neurology also states that people should consider the significant adverse effects and burdens of monitoring and really additionally the financial ramifications of those decisions that need to be taken into consideration. So I think it's important for the pharmacist to know that there was a statement from the American Academy of Neurology that was put out there. Thank you for that. Stephen, anything to add either from a patient and family perspective or what frontline pharmacists should know about this medication? What is important for the frontline pharmacist to understand specifically about this drug, but also other medications that continue to come ever more rapidly, is that in this modern era, we generally don't know nearly as much about drugs at initial approval as we used to. If you went back about two decades ago, 80% of drugs that were approved were approved based upon at least two clinical trials. Now that's down to about 50% trials. Half of trials maybe have two clinical trials, but 50% of them have only one clinical trial. And 80% of the drugs that are approved are usually associated with a expedited pathway, like a priority review, fast track, accelerated approval. These medications are coming to us more rapidly, which is fine because we're trying to get these medicines to the patients that need them, but we need to understand their limitations. We understand them as clinicians, and we also have to make sure that the patients understand them as well. We must continue to reevaluate these drugs and not just presume that since they got through that threshold of expedited or accelerated approval, that they are delivering the benefit. And a good example of that is last year, there was an article looking at CMS expenditures, both Part B and Part D, so both the medical and the pharmacy benefit, at 10 oncology drug indications between 2017 and 2019. And these were indications where there was a confirmed lack of benefit after an accelerated approval. So we have evidence that accelerated approval wasn't correct. And yet between those across those three years, CMS still spent $569 million on those medications. That's indicative of the fact that we probably don't have as much residual due diligence on these medications. I'm not here to say medicines don't work. A lot of medications do, but it is critically important for us as pharmacists to make sure that we're evaluating the performance of these medicines to ensure that they get to the right patients in the right fashion and that we don't spend our precious dollars on things that may not work because that money could be used on other therapies that in fact do. Stephen, that's a great point. And I just like to add that I feel that when aducanumab became available, there was such a rush to get the agent through committees to be approved, to be placed on formularies. And I think it's really important that in the future, if another drug comes about like this, that everybody take a pause a deep breath, and follow your policies and procedures that you have at your organization when you evaluate drugs. Don't make one-off decisions because you feel pressure 
to do so because we need to be the ones as pharmacists in conjunction with our physician colleagues and others to be that advocate, to be that voice, to do what's right by the patient based on evidence-based medicine. Atacanumab was a really good example where some people might have felt that pressure to kind of skip some things that they normally would have because we at the organization that I work at were getting questions on a daily basis of when the drug would be available, when could it be available to patients, and we had to take that pause and say we need to follow our process. And we need to make sure we review everything thoroughly before the committee makes a decision on what we're going to do. I just want to remind everybody out there that really follow your policy and procedure, especially when these complicated medications are coming down from the FDA. It's a really good perspective for all of us to keep in mind moving forward from a clinician perspective from both of you. So thank you for that. Mandy and Stephen, thank you both so much for joining us today to share your insights and expertise. It's been great having you on. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners. Please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening. <music>